Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 21st of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing his Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and uh, Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Uh, we'll get straight on with Ukraine. And I just wanted to begin uh, highlighting this article in uh, The Economist from a few days ago. Uh, the Headline says, Vladimir Putin's war is failing. The West should help it fail faster. Uh, Ukraine's friends should reinforce the success by sending more and better weapons, uh, calls from the uh, economist. Uh, the West should therefore reinforce success, they said. Uh, Ukraine has shown that it can use Western weapons to regain territory. The West should send better ones, such as uh, longer range munitions uh, for the HIMAR launchers uh, that have proved so effective. Uh, which has previously hesitated to, to supply. Uh, to avoid escalation, advanced NATO weapons should not be fired into Russia. Uh, Ukraine will surely comply rather than alienate its arms supplier. It will also need to, re uh, to sorry, it will also need a reliable flow of ammunition for future offensive and armored vehicles to move forces fast. The West should also consider what Ukraine might need next year uh, and vastly expand the scale of training for Ukrainian troops abroad. Well, indeed, the West has considered, or at least the UK has at least, what Ukraine might need, uh, need next year. Because uh, today they were, or yesterday they were tweeting this out. Uh, UK will match the £2.3 billion support for Ukraine in 2023. So what the government said was, uh, the UK is already the second largest military donor to Ukraine, committing £2.3 in 2022. Uh, we've trained 27,000 members of the Ukrainian armed forces since 2015. And in the last year, we've provided hundreds of rockets uh, live, uh, sorry, five air defense systems, 120 armored vehicles, and over 200,000 pieces of non-lethal military equipment. The price, precise nature of the UK military support in 2023 will be determined based on the needs of the armed forces of Ukraine. However, it's expected to include equipment from uh, the multiple launch rocket system provided to Ukraine by the UK and others, uh, which has been decisive in allowing Ukraine to regain over 3,000 square kilometers of territory in recent days. That's what the British government says. What did Liz Truss say? She said, Ukraine's victories in recent weeks have been inspirational. Time and again, these brave people have defied the doubters and showed what they can do when given the military, economic and political support they need. Well, this, this is all a propaganda operation, Mike, because the uh, truth of what's going on in Ukraine is very different from what Liz Truss would have us believe all the Western media. And uh, today we're going to take a look at one of the uh, commentators who's been producing some really good uh, research commentary on Ukraine. That's Brian Boletic from the new Atlas. Uh, let's have a look at the first of the clips here where he takes a look at what is happening on the front in Ukraine. And he's basing this on pro-Ukrainian uh, map reports. Let's take a look at the map. So this is liveuamap.com, very pro-Ukrainian, pro-NATO. A lot of this information comes from the Ukrainian general staff or the Ukrainian government and other uh, sources across the West. We look around Kherson. Again, this was where the first and largest offensive took place and it has made no progress. Uh, they continue sending smaller and smaller units uh, into Russian defenses. Russia continues to defeat them. Now, here's the thing. 
just because Ukraine is sending forces into Russian defenses does not mean that that is an offensive. Uh, this could be reconnaissance in force where they are attacking Russian defensive positions to uh, obtain information about their disposition, their strengths, and their weaknesses. And as a matter of fact, looking back at the map, we, we can see something very similar taking place from uh, around Zaporozhia uh, all the way over to Bugladar, uh, just north of Mariupol. We've seen these attacks over and over again over the last uh, week or two now. And I think if there is another offensive launched, we will know about it. A significant amount of troops will be involved. These are much smaller actions. Uh, some, some people may refer to them as, as probing Russian defenses. This is reconnaissance in force. That's what it looks like to me. So that's a very different take on uh, the fact that uh, there's been uh, major success, certainly no success in the Kherson area, as Brian Boletic's reporting. Now, his background is military, ex-US um, Marine, and he backs up his reports with the information, and you can find the source material under the video clip there in the new atlas. But he also raises a second subject that uh, the West doesn't want to talk about at all. Let's have a look at this one. Now, if we go to uh, Donetsk City, if we go to Donetsk City right, right now on liveuamap.com, you will see, you know, a, a fire is, is, is noted on the map. And at other times, they will even note that there are civilians being killed in Donetsk City. Who is killing these civilians? Ukrainian artillery is killing these civilians. Artillery, rockets, they are, they are shelling downtown Donetsk city. There are no military targets in downtown Donetsk. It is purely a, a civilian area and Ukraine is deliberately shelling it. So, so that's a pretty, pretty uh, important statement, Mike. And of course, that takes us back into the origins of the conflict in Ukraine, right. uh, where civilians were targeted. But of course, the Western media to date does not want to engage with these reports. So, uh, what should we look at next? Well, let's have a look at uh, analysis of how the US uh, is, is giving its uh, media briefs on what is actually happening in Ukraine. Supplying Ukraine with tanks, they would be able to operate Soviet era tanks. Uh, and now those are being destroyed, especially during this offensive around Kherson and Kharkov, a lot of those tanks have been destroyed. So now, now they need more tanks. Where are they going to come from? And the, the answer uh, that people are arriving at are, well, we'll send Western tanks. We'll send German Leopard 2s. We'll send American M1 Abrams. Uh, but this is what the senior defense official says. And, and see if you can pick up on, on where they're going. We agreed that armor is a really important capability area for the Ukrainians. Now, they've largely been relying on Soviet-type tanks, and we've spent a good deal of effort in encouraging countries, largely in Europe, who have some of these, you know, formerly Russian-made tanks, to provide them to Ukraine to supplement Ukraine's existing tank inventory. But as I said before, when we look at Ukraine's longer-term needs, we recognize that there will be a day when they may want to transition and may need to transition because all, all of their Soviet-era tanks will be destroyed, you know, NATO-compatible models. 
We're always very cognizant, though, with any new equipment that we provide to Ukraine or that our allies, our partners provide, that there is substantial training, maintenance, and sustainment considerations. So we want to make sure that when we provide capabilities that all of these are taken into account. And what they're saying, what they're admitting, is that it is completely impractical to send Western main battle tanks to Ukraine. It will take months, if not years, to integrate large numbers of Western main battle tanks into Ukraine's military effort. And for people who, who continuously say, and this is a good point to make, well, they'll send these Western tanks and they'll be operated by Western tankers. They won't be operated by Ukrainians. The problem still remains that you have a tank on the battlefield that was designed to operate in a combined arms environment, and instead it is out there by itself uh, vulnerable to Russia's military capabilities. This is why Ukraine has lost so many tanks and why they are begging the West for more, because they are putting them out on the battlefield in an environment where they will be quickly destroyed. So this is the craziness of the situation. The British and the Americans in the moment refusing to talk about the reality of what's actually happening on the back battlefield. And of course, Ukraine does not have any air defense. So any of that armor is going to be destroyed, however long that takes. But note in the Economist uh, report there, uh, Mike, they specifically indicated that uh, the Ukrainians shouldn't target long-range HIMARS against Russian territory, well, that is about to be a confused picture because, of course, we've now got partial mobilization. And uh, these are some of the reports on social media channels for the area, if we can pop this one on, on screen. So we've got mobilization activities start today. This is a partial mobilization. Current military personnel con Contracts have been extended until the end of partial mobilization. Conscripts will not take part in hostilities. Uh, even college students will not be called up. Uh, a total of 300,000 reservists out of 25 million conscripts will be called up. Those with low fitness for service under law will not. The mobilized citizens will be contracted uh, military with full social guarantees and the government will determine as soon as possible the categories of citizens who are entitled uh, to the delayed. Well, I think that's the mobilization they're talking about. There's some of the translations a bit suspect. But this thing is now beginning to escalate as a result of the uh, weapons put in by the West prolonging the uh, war. And now the Russians are reacting. Uh, but let's uh, listen to some of the statements that have been made. I'm just going to come back to the 15th September, and this is Maria Zakharova, and listen to what she says. CNN has recently reported, I have to cite CNN because it is an American source reporting American information, which should be accepted as reliable proof in the United States. The Americans don't believe other sources. CNN has not yet been declared a foreign agent in the United States, which is why I am citing it. CNN has written that, according to Pentagon officials, they were preparing detailed analysis and working out how to support Ukraine's military in the medium and long term, not only during the special military operation, which the Americans expect to last a long time, but also for five years after it has ended. 
чем это говорит? Это говорит о том, что тем самым США демонстрируют свою заинтересованность в максимальном затягивании боевых действий. This is proof of the United States' direct involvement in the hostilities. A report and recommendations on security guarantees for Ukraine, which were presented the other day by a group of experts led by head of the Ukrainian President's office Andrei Yermak and former NATO Secretary General Anders Folk Rasmussen, serve the same purpose. They provide for the continued delivery of Western weapons to Ukraine and the training of its military to fight Russia. We remember former U.S. President George W. Bush saying several months ago that Ukraine's mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as you can. It appears that there is a highly unethical meaning to lofty words. It is not security guarantees for Ukraine, but a desire to kill us. In the past, the West didn't say so openly. It said that we are unacceptably different, that we should be reformed, adjusted and straightened out, and that teaching us would take a long time. They have now changed the tone and say openly that Russians must be killed. So, uh, a pretty powerful speech there, but based on what is being said in Western media, where we are seeing people openly calling for an extension of the war and the killing of, of Russian soldiers. Uh, so, I can't find anything in, in what she said that we could fault. Alex, I don't know what uh, you feel about what she said there, but clearly uh, the Russians are now up against the wall where they're saying, well, what is the West telling us? The West is telling us they want to kill Russians and destroy Russia. And I can't, I can't see anything wrong in what she's actually saying because she's citing uh, Western sources. As always, Brian, Maria Zakharova is straight down the line. I think everyone can tell, even from her intonation and body language, how measured and moral she is. And as you say, she is doing nothing more or less than citing the West's own statements against it. And this mentality of first contain Ivan and then liquidate Ivan, I did see uh, creep up to dominance during my years in British intelligence, which is already nearly 15 years ago at its uh, latest. Uh, it's uh, nearly a quarter of a century since I joined GCHQ, but I saw the encroachment of it. Um, there is a lot to unpack, and I don't want in a news to say anything that could be uh, misinterpreted since we are at such a sensitive stage now with talk of nuclear war, which I know Mike's about to get onto. So uh, I do know that I'm due to be on a round table tomorrow with Gonzalo Lira and with Mariam, popularly known as Syrian Girl, and perhaps one other guest. Um, we'll get into this stuff, but certainly what the foreign ministry is saying, you cannot fault. Okay, th thank you for that, Alex. Uh, and just before we move on to the issue of nuclear weapons, uh, Brian, uh, getting back to the Economist article for a second, and they're talking about long-range weapons not being fired into Russian territory. Of course, in the next few days, we're going to start seeing a referendum taking place in, in the Donbass, uh, in which case uh, we'll then hear the the West complaining about Russian annexation of the Donbass, uh, just as they did over Russian alleged Russian annexation of the Crimea. Uh, does that then become Russian territory? You know, and uh, and that, that becomes uh, problematic if people are, if, if Ukraine is starting to fire 
uh, weapons into that territory? Well, from, from all of the uh, analysis that I've seen, yes, absolutely, it means that it becomes Russian territory and therefore attacks will effectively be on Russia itself. Again, Alex, don't know whether you'd like to comment on that, but we can, we can see this ramping up uh, step by step and, and who is pouring the fuel in, into the fire, the US, the UK, European Union, Western powers. Yes, I mean, again, very briefly, but whenever the word nuclear is mentioned, and there are clips of Putin in the past reproving a Japanese journalist for even mentioning nuclear weapons and saying, what are you talking about? Not a thing to discuss casually, man. Whenever it's mentioned, you have to be very careful. Just down the road from me in Belgium, the Prime Minister Alexander de Croo has already said, we need to take a step back and calm down because of this Kremlin speech. Uh, and of course, he, together with the Netherlands and Germany and Italy, well, Italy certainly, are countries that are widely said to have US-loaned nuclear weapons that they could use from aeroplanes if the worst ever happened. One of the conceivable outcomes is indeed, as it would have been in the Cold War, we know now, that Britain and France would not have been attacked directly by, uh, in those days, Soviet, now Russian, nuclear forces because they had their own nukes. So the Continentals are getting very cold feet about this one thing. Uh, the text of the Kremlin speech given this morning doesn't in terms say if you touch uh, de jure Russian territory or what may soon be the incorporated oblasts, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, it'll be nuclear war. Putin is talking about resisting nuclear blackmail, as he calls it, which uh, above all points to Liz Truss, having said in her jolly uh, leadership campaign, of course, I'd hit the button. And uh, He's spoken about uh, the um, the existential threat that there may be to Russia being met by all Russia's weapons. So just one notch down from that, but it, it amounts to the same thing, preparedness to use nuclear weapons, possibly in a first strike. That's about as daring as I want to get in interpreting Putin's words while they're still fresh. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Alex. Well, let's listen to the words of a Putin advisor and former uh, member, effectively member of the Russian parliament, uh, Sergei Markov. Uh, who was speaking on uh, BBC Radio 4's Today programme this morning. Uh, good morning. What but it's not good morning. Good morning, frankly speaking, for everybody. In Russia, it's partial mobilisation. And for Western countries, for your British listeners, I would say that Vladimir Putin told you that he will be ready to use uh, nuclear weapons uh, against Western countries, including nuclear weapons uh, against Great Britain. Your cities... Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's just make that clear. You believe that in that speech there was a clear threat not just to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, but also to start a general nuclear war that would kill everyone? Uh, not everyone, but who can kill a lot of people in the Western countries. It was absolutely clear that Russia has no war against Ukraine. Russia, for Russia, has no reason to use tactical nuclear weapons against Ukrainians. Ukrainians are our brothers, and but Ukrainians occupied by Western countries, who uh, made proxy army from United from uh, Ukrainians, and uh, it's Western countries fighting against Russian army using Ukrainian soldiers as their slaves. Uh, uh, setting aside the nuclear issue for a second, the second part of that conversation I find very hard to uh, 
criticize anything in that. He's saying that uh, tactical nuclear weapons would not be used in Ukraine because Ukraine is, uh, uh, Ukrainians are our brothers. Uh, we're not at war with Ukraine. This, they yeah. ins insisting that this is a special military operation. Um, but, and, and absolutely saying that, in their view, Ukraine is occupied by the West. Uh, so their action, therefore, the implication is their action is to remove an occupying power effectively. And what they regard as a very dangerous occupying power because that occupying power has brought weapons right up onto the Russian border. And clearly with the supply of weapons to date, the West is demonstrating they want those weapons to be used. Um, how much trust do we put in Zelensky not to use a weapon which, let's use a hypothetical question, could target Moscow? If he had one, would he use it? My opinion is absolutely. Because, uh, and because the, the man, full, sorry, sorry, and with the full encouragement of the UK. And with the full encouragement of the UK at the moment. So, so that statement is that um, we don't see why we should be dropping weapons on Ukraine because the people causing the problem are located in rather different places. And he's pointing a finger at this country. But of course, um, the US is, is also included here. This, um, Alex, I, I'm watching your face here. We're in serious times today, but we can see that the Russians now feel that they, they are absolutely backs against the wall. Where do they go from here? If they do nothing, uh, then of course the military regime in Ukraine is going to be increased and resupplied and made into a proper army. They can't do nothing. They have to do something. This is where I think Johnny Vedmore, uh, who is increasingly going to be writing for us, by the way, although not in this very issue, is insightful because he is above anyone else. He's got the vision of how the clique around Henry Kissinger, which is ultimately the Cecil Rhodes clique, as we know, um, used the threat of annihilation through bugs, chemicals, germs, um, uh, nuclear, any any mass means of destruction as the threat to keep us on the reserve, keep our perception within their mind space from the end of the Second World War onwards. It's called been called the Brotherhood of Death. It is a secret network. The Russians had their own nasties. They have the full philosophical gamut that we do. They have people who don't believe on grounds of physics that nuclear weapons can work uh, or that they're cover for some other whizzy weapon. Uh, they have people who theologically believe that nuclear weapons won't be allowed by God to destroy the earth because that's his job, right through to people who say at the military and strategic end, let's use them first to avoid destruction. You've also got thinkers in our camp, as it were, like Joel Skousen, who say, well, Russia's still coordinating with China to wait until later in the decade when it has the strategic advantage, when the, uh, uh, the positions have exchanged and the Russians and Chinese have leapfrogged us militarily. All of these are on the table, so we would be fools to disregard anything any option that's being discussed at the moment. Okay, thank you. Well, we just play this uh, via the uh, slide. It's, this was uh, Putin talking. Uh, this uh, particular video clip is carried on a lot of social media um, in Eastern Europe at the moment. Um, Alex, one of the things that I was very interested in was your opinion on his demeanor in giving uh, the speech that he did. Uh, do you regard it as a measured speech? or? Um, no doubt the BBC and Western media would be instantly saying this is mad Putin. But how, how does he come across when you can understand what he's saying in his native tongue? Well, it does make a difference, Brian. People will find easily enough on Kremlin.ru the English transcript of what Putin said. And the words on paper do look very measured. I wouldn't go completely the other way and say that 
in in the Russian cadence is it's irrational or, or, or unmeasured. How can you be anything, you know, completely calm when you're talking about potential use of nuclear weapons? But there is more anger. That's probably too much of a spinning word. There is more concern, deep visceral concern for himself and his people than I've ever heard before. Uh, physically as well, just at the bottom of the screen, you'll see there is a nervous tick with the right thumb. Every inflection going up in the in the Russian is matched by a tick. Some people claim that this is physical degeneration on Putin's part. We have to start discussing this openly because he's not an Iron Man any more than any of the other rest of us. Um, all of these things could be playing a part. And very neutrally, I would add, there is a lot of talk now of potential palace coups or military coups by disgruntled Russian officers against Putin, discounting the diplomatic uh, and senior, you know, Western-facing uh, part of Russia, which I think is beyond reproach in this. So, yes, there is a concern for himself. You could say it's well-founded, but I've never, never heard him this jittery. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, where does that lead us to uh, uh, close proximity, really, uh, uh, to to the Ukrainian situation and more? And more trouble, more strife, more fighting on the ground. This is just too hideous to go into detail on, but uh, people will know the name Kevork Almasian. He's a very well-known commentator, mainly on Syria, where he lives, but he is an ethnic Armenian. There's a large Armenian community in Syria. And he is reporting what other diaspora Armenians, Western Armenians based in countries like Syria, have got from the ground since Azerbaijan invaded uh, Armenia proper by ground and air last week, as we reported. And this lady, who apparently is called Anush, was reportedly raped, semi-beheaded, stabbed, had her eyes gouged out and replaced with stones, and her fingers cut off and shoved in her mouth. And he claims to have seen footage of this, which uh, I'm, I'm not bloodthirsty enough to want to watch, but Almasian is a reliable man. And if people think that's off the charts, uh, go and have a look at this book. Sorry for the shameless plug because I was the editor, but it's called Sadistic Pleasures, Silent Crimes of Azerbaijan, written by Ashken Arakelyan, uh, after interviewing prisoners of war held by Azerbaijan in autumn, winter 2020 and onwards. And it's on a level with, if people know their Romanian history, with Pitesh to prison. It's, it's more hideous than anything I've read from the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. Uh, what's been done to those prisoners. So it is perfectly conceivable, I'm afraid, that Azerbaijan uh, is, is, or its soldiers on the ground who have invaded Armenia proper are up to that. They now have the commanding heights on the main road on that uh, sliver of land in the south of the country, Sunik, go down, going down to the Iranian border. So they're stopping traffic down to the Iranian border already without there being a big shooting war. The Secretary of the Armenian Defense Council has reportedly told the Russian version of NATO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization this morning, in which both Armenia and Azerbaijan are members, uh, sorry, only Armenia, but Azerbaijan has some status there. Uh, they, it's largely an Armenian-Russian alliance in this regard. Um, the Secretary of the Defense Council of Armenia has told the CSTO this morning that Azerbaijan must clear off, which is code for, we know Russian peacekeepers have breached the Minsk agreement in their placements and in their tacit aid to the Azeris. I know viewers don't want to hear this, a lot of them, but I'm afraid it's being confirmed. I'm trying to loosen that, decouple it from Ukraine, because I don't know enough about Ukraine 
to claim any kind of tie-over, but there are reports of Azeri tanks probably off their own bat, no coordination with Russia here, but Azeri tanks crossing the border, this is not a, as a, into Karabakh, this is into Armenia proper, de, de jure Armenia, that they're displaying these Z insignia letters on the tanks, at least in a show of having Russia behind them. And there is a lot of energy politics in here because, of course, Azeri oil and gas, increasingly Europe's dependent on it, uh, is being inflated by Russian uh, oil and gas, which is sanctioned in the West. Uh, and the oil and gas that Turkey has, in some cases, nicked from its neighbours like Iraq and Syria, that all seems to be flowing through Azerbaijan in a connivance. So the long and the short of it is, I'm afraid Armenia has lost hope in, in Russia, even if only for the prosaic reason that it's rather tied up in Ukraine at the moment. Big societal shifts. Uh, at the moment, no big shooting match, but the town of Jermuk, quite a sizable town on the eastern border with Azerbaijan, inside Armenia proper, around where Lake, Lake Sivan is in the middle. Uh, Azeri troops are reportedly just two miles from that town, and they were inside it until they were repelled, I think, earlier this morning. Uh, so the capital, Yerevan, is some way away from the action, but the mayor was re being reported already on the 22nd of August as having said that due to post-Soviet failures and corruption, the Armenians hadn't maintained the bomb shelters from the Soviet era in their capital city. Uh, so Mr. Sargsyan has been talking about the need to get these in order. And from just a couple of days ago, an Armenian has sent me the next slide, which is um, a picture of a handbill with the uh, details of the address uh, blanked out by correcting fluid by the look of it. But this is, uh, I've had a look at the Armenian. It's an, it is a notice to residents that in the event of Azerbaijani bombardment, the word Azerbaijan is not mentioned, but in the event of bombardment, on hearing the air raid shelter, you should assemble at the basement of building so-and-so, which is blanked out. So this may be something that's gone around the whole city. I haven't got word on that yet. The biggest thing going on in Armenia, though, is the societal tension around Independence Day, which is today, the 21st of September. We'll roll silently in the background now some footage of what's been going on at the Yerablur War Memorial where every year the Prime Minister goes to pay his respects to the dead of the very recent wars, such as the 1990s Nagorno-Karabakh War. Here, we are told that what happened is that a bunch of war widows from the 1990s war turned up and were dragged away uh, by these Red Berets, which are police special forces, uh, because they were trying to prevent or at least protest at the appearance of Pashinyan, the Prime Minister, just after sunrise, as you can see there, uh, to pay his respects. They found that disgusting in light of what's been going on. I'm afraid that here again, things are a bit murkier. Uh, you can see on screen that the footage was taken by News.am, which is owned by the former president, and before that he was the leader of Nagorno-Karabakh, the ethnic Armenian separatist territory, Robert Kocharyan, who is being perceived by some now as a stalwart Putinist. Uh, and his, his faction of Armenian society is dwindling as people lose hope in Russia's, if not in their goodwill, at least in their genuine ability uh, to, to sort this mess out. And you can see a wreath being fiddled with at the end of that clip. And that is because, according to people I trusted, such as Gevorg Virats, with whom I've done podcasts, there was only about three actual war widows there. What happened, I'm told, before the filming started, is that a group of pro-Russian um, non-war widows turned up and interfered with the wreaths laid for the war dead on Memorial Day, on the Independence Day, um, in order to provoke a reaction from the police and then mingle with the crowd as if they were war widows. I cannot guarantee that, but if Gevorg says it, I take it very seriously indeed. Um, finally, for me, for this segment, a cartoon has been doing the rounds, which I'm afraid is very accurate. 
which is Ukraine and Armenia setting up their respective stalls for international support. And as you can see, the entire West, including uh, countries like Japan um, and the UN as a whole, uh, are queuing up to support Ukraine, uh, either by changing their uh, social media profile or shining lights on buildings or flying flags. Uh, Armenia has got no takers, and it would seem, even if only for practical reasons, the no takers now includes their technical ally, Russia. Okay, well, this interesting next uh, segment, um, uh, which uh, interests me because, of course, Putin has uh, been warning in a number of speeches about the decline of the West and where it's leading, and uh, even to the extent of saying it's not something that uh, would be wanted in Russia itself. So uh, let's get back to um, well, some censorship in this case. So, right. so uh, this yeah. is this is uh, the. Free Speech uh, Union tweeting this out uh, earlier today uh, because uh, they were highlighting an article appearing in the Telegraph uh, because PayPal has shut down the account of uh, the Free Speech Union. So uh, uh, the tweet says, withdrawing financial services from dissidents and non-conformants and those who dare to defend them is a new front line for the ongoing war against free speech. Uh, and uh, that's from uh, the uh, Free Speech Union Secretary General Toby Young. Uh, well, Toby Young was himself tweeting uh, this out. Uh, this morning, PayPal has closed the accounts of the Daily Skeptic and the Free Speech Union. Uh, a new low in big tech's war on free speech. Not only can you not express certain views, uh, you can't defend people's right to express them. Um, so uh, let's have a look at the Daily Skeptic coverage of this. This is what he had to say. First, I, The first I heard about this was on Thursday afternoon last week when I received a notification from my personal PayPal account informing me I was being shut down because I'd violated the company's acceptable use policy. I took it, uh, I looked at the policy and it covers things like fraud and money laundering. So my first thought was that it must be a mistake. Then a few minutes later, I got another notification, this one from the Daily Skeptics PayPal account. That too had been shut down and for the same reason. Uh, that was odd, he says. Then another email, this one from the Free Speech Union's PayPal account, same story, the acceptable use policy. So PayPal clearly targeting uh, Toby Young and everything that he's involved in, all three. Uh, so he said he contacted customer services. Uh, the person he spoke to said she had no idea, but if but he could escalate it. Uh, no explanation was offered beyond the original one. Oh, and by the way, PayPal would be keeping the money in the account for up to 180 days while it decides on whether PayPal is entitled to, quotes, damages for Toby Young's yet to be explained breach of its acceptable use policy. Um, and then, uh, so same story with the other accounts. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say that, uh, he goes on to talk about other uh, outlets that have been affected by this, for example, Consortium Newsmint Press. Uh, and uh, both, well, he's saying there that they are both left wing and they're opposed to the war in Ukraine, which is presumably why PayPal canceled them. Uh, is the fact that the Daily Skeptic has published articles critical to the mainstream narrative about that war, including one in which we linked to Mint Press, the reason we've been canceled. And he says, this seems a bit harsh, given that we've also published several articles defending Ukraine and its war effort and debunking some of the criticisms of the current Ukrainian regime. Uh, and he says a, a number of sites that have raised questions about the COVID vaccines have also been demonetized by PayPal in the past few months, including the UK Medical Freedom Alliance, Liz Evans, the head of uh, UK MFA, uh, also her personal PayPal account closed at the same time. So uh, PayPal seeming to take the uh, same tactics over the UK media, uh, sorry, UK Medical Freedom Alliance in the sense that they attacked it as an organization 
plus the, its head uh, with her personal account. So uh, look, uh, this is extremely dangerous uh, for uh, freedom of speech, okay, but also for uh, any effort to, to throw some light on what uh, governments around the world are doing. Um, and uh, well, we've got to support Toby Young and the Daily Skeptic in this. We have, and of course it's the spread. You can't comment on what's happening with the sexualization of children, the massive liberal agenda, which is clearly destroying this country in the West. Uh, but you can't comment on medical matters and where people have been harmed for vaccines without being shut down. So um, we come back, are we in a democracy? Clearly we're not because uh, free speech is out of, out of the window in, in UK in 2022. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, uh, what is Liz Truss up to then? Uh, government's about to launch its growth plan. Here's the graphic that pushed out on Twitter this morning. Uh, it's going to be announced on uh, Friday when uh, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, gets up in Parliament to uh, discuss it. Uh, and what are they talking about? Uh, they're talking about that this is what they're saying, that this is going to follow on from Truss's energy price guarantee announced on the 8th of September. So that's good. Uh, it's expected to reverse the national insurance rise brought about last year. Uh, it's probably going to freeze corporation tax. It's going to introduce low tax enterprise zones. Um, it's going to, uh, well, it's going to also fund uh, not only a price cap on energy for uh, homes and uh, individuals, but also for businesses as well. So 150 billion pounds now seems like nothing. Well, in fact, uh, the budget deficit, deficit is going through the roof uh, and uh, the uh, budget deficit for August was the highest on record. So government uh, borrowing like crazy, but it doesn't end there, Brian. It doesn't end there because of course the best thing that the government could possibly do in order to sort out the cost of living crisis and make sure that the economy is growing is to make sure that bankers can get bigger bonuses. Uh, and this is going to be announced apparently on Friday as well. Uh, so Liz Truss was challenged about this. And uh, well, I'm going to apologize in advance for playing this little bit of video, but I think it's important that people uh, hear what she has to say. But most importantly, look at her, watch her face carefully as she's talking here. What I want to see is a growing economy. So everybody in our country has the high paid jobs that they deserve, that the investment into their town or city or, or area, the new business is being set up. That's the kind of Britain that I want to see. That means taking difficult decisions, which are gonna help Britain become more competitive, help Britain become more attractive, help more investment flow into our country. Yes, I'm absolutely prepared to take those decisions. So uh, helping bankers get bigger bonuses is all about keeping Britain competitive. And of course, we're not seeing bankers squeal at the moment, despite all of the economic problems. Um, they don't appear to be saying we've got major problems, but they need a little bit of extra cash to help them get by. Um, but the industrial military complex, of course, money pouring in for those weapons and munitions for Ukraine. Yeah, so tough times to be a banker, but you've got an ally in Liz Truss. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, Alex, uh, coming back to, to children and so on, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Vanessa uh, was talking about uh, uh, the type of material going into schools to teach uh, children about sexual education. Um, but uh, we've had a communication from uh, a, a viewer. 
Yes, Matthew is a secondary school teacher, and people can freeze the screen to read everything that he writes to us. Uh, he says that the students now have a whole term's worth of material to cover every year. The content is becoming much more mature, and the detail is becoming increasingly graphic. The government making this mandatory, of course, we know that's uh, in the lead in Wales at the moment, is nothing less than a subversion of the family and of parents' rights to educate the children uh, in their children in these matters, as well as a deliberate act of social engineering, promoting LGBT lifestyles, I think he's not going too far in saying that, and conditioning the children with a humanistic approach to sexuality while desensitizing them in the process. Uh, as I say, people can go back and freeze the screen and look at the bullet points, but look at some of the material being pushed at secondary school or in other countries that would be high school level children. And I've taken out the worst ones, which are uh, asking uh, teenagers how often uh, often enough is for masturbation and how popular anal sex is. But look at this. Are there any good reasons to send nudes, sex, sexts and dick pics to impress your partner, to be brave about a naughty photograph, to do it for a dare? You didn't see the harm in doing it because you were drunk. For fun and it's a good laugh, it's flirting, etc. Uh, this is all being, of course, uh, collected I think in the form of values clarification, which Christine, sorry, uh, Charlotte Thompson Isaac was writing about 40 years ago. Here's a task for secondary school essay writing. Come up with your own sexting story using these images as, here's an odd choice of word, stimulus. Hmm. I don't like this stuff, gentlemen. How about this for people of all faiths and none? I think it's quite shocking. The Proud Trust, which calls itself in its byline the home of LGBT plus youth, has a slide in this or a piece of an image in this material going to secondary school pupils saying we are going to see two stories of people who are same sex attracted and Christian and look at the globe logo, all the religions circling around Mother Earth. And we're going to see children how they handle this potential conflict in different ways and between brackets they've stuck equally valid ways of dealing with it. Can you be gay and Christian? An interview with Rob Wood. Um, it's getting pretty explicit, isn't it? And it's getting to the point of uh, you're allowed your religions, you're allowed your philosophical convictions, as long as they don't interfere with the promotion of anal sex. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come back to the fact that I find it remarkable that it takes Putin to warn the West of what is actually destroying the West from the inside. We're not getting any warnings on this subject matter from our own heads of state. It's taking somebody outside the country. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to qd.ukcolumn.org. There are options for you to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but please do share material on the various platforms. Now, Alex, a quick correction, uh, because uh, I think it was last week you had this uh, poster on screen. Yes, this was the uh, supposedly the Swiss Ministry of Energy and Associated Doings asking people to snitch on their neighbours for a 200 franc reward if the uh, neighbours were suspected of heating their flat above 19 degrees Celsius. The law is being brought in federally in Switzerland. It shouldn't even be a federal law, but there you go in the Swiss system. Uh, the phone number is genuine. I mentioned to viewers last week we had checked about at least that much. It is the information switchboard or the Swiss Federal Ministry of Education and whatnot. Uh, but it has turned out not to be a valid poster campaign. And as I recall, I haven't gone back to check, but I did tell people we weren't certain about that bit yet. Of course, as we welcome all corrections, we often elicit them ourselves, even if we know we're in the right. Um, people did leap on that. 
Uh, and here among the responses and debunkings, this one was the most telling. We bring that up. There we are, SRF, the federal level Swiss public broadcaster, gleefully talks about a gefälschte Energiesparkampagne or a falsified or fake energy saving campaign. The Swiss federal police is uh, starting an investigation. But look at this bit I've uh, highlighted. Uh, in the SRF material, they write that debunkers, which they translate into German for the viewers as well, for the readers as well, um, worked out this was a fake. And they have had to go all the way to England's West Country to find a debunker. Catherine Denkinson, uh, who's, uh, who takes herself so seriously that she speaks about uh, internet searches as OSINT, that's open source intelligence. An OSINT buddy, so that's a friend of a lady in England's West Country picked up by the Swiss reporting on what's happening right there in Switzerland. A bit of this. An OSINT body of Catherine's did the work on this. The Swiss snitch on your neighbour for 200 francs poster is a fake, which we didn't. Uh, well, I won't be definitive about it, but we, we were asking whether it was fake or not. The policies there, the laws there, but of course, stock photos, no other pics of the poster. If we had hours to go through this stuff, we would be able to pick up all this. And we sometimes do have to ride on the edge of what we know. Uh, we never deliberately uh, prevent, uh, present questionable material, uh, but there you go. Uh, we, we always retract. This, and there is Catherine. She is a freelance investigative journalist and OSINT Oracle, that is posh speak for someone who can use Google. She has bylines everywhere, that is she work, writes for all kinds of titles regarding the far right, that would be us, feminism, misinformation, uh, that would be our reporting, and conspiracies, that would be policy. Yes, well, there, indeed. There we go. But uh, the sentiment of the poster was absolutely spot on because uh, we are rapidly heading towards the government uh, running organizational snitches. Yes. Now, Alex, uh, just very, very briefly on this, if we could, uh, we've got uh, a couple of new articles on the website, but do you want to highlight this one uh, from Bruce Scott? It's all top quality, but this one, I think a lot of viewers have found to be a standout piece. It's the central part of a three-parter by Dr. Bruce Scott uh, called Menticide 101 and the Brainwashing of a World. Part two is called Beyond the Fear, meaning what, what is in store for us beyond the fear. Well, I won't read all that out, but that is the key extract. Uh, we've been deliberately lied to uh, with <laughs> uh, contradictory claims. This is fear waves and threats. And here is a particularly important conclusion from near the end of the piece. Appealing to reason won't have any effect on totalitarians. We have to realize that we're not dealing with particularly rational or logical people. They speak with forked tongues. And Dr. Scott knows of what he speaks. And he's prepared to name names and deliberately flouted policies with known mind-killing conclusions, for that is what menticide means. One other piece to plug by a new writer, a retired educationalist from Northern Ireland, Hugh McCarthy. Why are we vaccinating children? People have given us flack for uh, using Hugh McCarthy's own word, vaccinating, although he himself is questioning what it is in the shots. But people, we, we don't censor people's use of language, even when we understand the concern that we shouldn't be calling these jabs vaccines. Uh, we let people speak in their own words and explain their own thinking. McCarthy's conclusion is there's none of the three reasons are met for jabbing children. Then they don't work. They're not safe, or at least there's serious questions thereabouts, and they're not necessary for children. And the weight is that the preponderance is on the uh, authorities to explain why we are, although there's been a, a silent withdrawal of the policy, why we are still at least allowing the uh, jabbing of children for COVID, at which they're uh, of infinitesimally small risk. One more thing I've spotted, Mr. Mark Oki on Twitter has tagged GB News in, I would say, a cheeky and friendly tag uh, on Twitter saying, hey, GB News, 
any chance you could catch up to UK Cullum on the old common purpose saga. It's kind of important. Thanks. Yes. Well, we can, we can only applaud that, uh, that kind of intervention. So uh, thank you for that. Perhaps we're already moving in that direction, I think we would say, because uh, there's, there is a lot of interesting material coming to the fore. Um, OK, let's uh, move on then to uh, the latest all-cause mortality statistics from the Office for National Statistics. And if we look over on the right-hand side uh, for the week ending uh, the... Uh, uh, sorry, it's the 9th of September 2022, uh, 10,753 deaths registered in England and Wales, 365 of those deaths mentioned novel coronavirus, uh, which is 3.4%. Uh, the number of deaths above the five-year average uh, was, uh, was twenty the usual, 23% uh, above in private homes, 6% uh, above in hospitals, uh, and so on. So private homes continue to be uh, the significant place of death for people that are uh, considered to be uh, an excess death. Uh, still no major commentary on this, as far as I can see, no major outrage in the mainstream press or amongst politicians, just complete silence on it. It continues. But what's interesting is that yesterday, so that, that was published today, yesterday, uh, the Office for National Statistics published uh, a report on excess deaths in England and Wales from March 2020 to June 2022. And this is what they said, in England and Wales, the total number of excess deaths due to all causes registered between March 2020 and June 2022 was 137,447. Of these, 87,000 were males and 50,000 were females. Uh, they said the months with the highest numbers of excess deaths were April 2020 and January 2021. Uh, and they said that the leading causes of deaths with the highest numbers of excess deaths in England and Wales were, first of all, symptoms, signs and ill-defined conditions, which they say is often linked to old age and frailty, uh, cirrhosis and other diseases of the liver, and diabetes. So the top three uh, causes of death which resulted in excess mortality were not related uh, in the last two years to coronavirus or COVID-19. Uh, they then went on to say, when deaths due to COVID-19 were removed from the total, the number of deaths remained above the five-year average in 12 of the 28 months, six of these were consecutive. So this is a really key point because what they're saying quite clearly here is that uh, what COVID-19 did and all the furore over COVID-19 was to mask a problem which already existed in the National Health Service because we were already seeing deaths above the five-year average uh, over those periods of time which were not related to COVID-19. Uh, they went on to say the place of occurrence of the highest number of excess deaths due to causes other than COVID-19 was private homes with 89,253 excess deaths. Just think about that again, uh, because what did we say? What, did the, what does the government claim about COVID-19? The government claims 150,000 deaths as a result of COVID-19, and that required the shutdown of the entire country, the shutdown of our economy, the shutdown of everything. This piece of text, the place of occurrence with the highest number of excess deaths due to causes other than COVID-19 was private homes with 89,253 excess deaths. I find that staggering that, that there's been no comment on this at all, uh, bearing in mind that 89,000 is a fairly significant figure. Uh, but just to end this little bit then, uh, the Office for National Statistics also tweeting this out uh, today. Across March, April and May, we saw increases in deaths due to cardiac arrhythmias, predominantly amongst those aged 80 and above, 
Further work needs to be done to understand any link between the long-term effects of COVID-19 and increasing cardiac deaths. And uh, Debbie, I think I'm going to ask you for comment on this because this to me is staggering. Uh, the refusal, the simple refusal in any uh, official release to acknowledge the slightest possibility of vaccine-related uh, causes to any uh, cardiac arrhythmias. Yeah, I mean, it, it is staggering. And as we've always asked and, and we've always said, you know, they have never, ever, ever addressed the whole, the, the whole serious adverse reaction debate. So they've never been able to eliminate these COVID-19 gene technology injections. They've never been able to eliminate them. To say they don't cause or they're not even being mentioned actually dovetails in very nicely, Mike, with my next segment, uh, with my segment, um, which I have to thank Alex for, for sending me today because going back to what you've just said about cardiac and myocarditis, um, Alex sent me this very disturbing YouTube um, that's circulating around social media at the moment um, and it seems to be appearing to normalize myocarditis in children. It's been released by the New York Presbyterian Hospital um, and it's called a paediatric story. I don't know if you've actually got the clip of it there. Yeah, we do. Let's have a look at this. I've been into fashion since I can remember. But one day I had a stomach ache so bad I didn't want to do anything. The team at New York Presbyterian said it was actually my heart. It was severely swollen, something called myocarditis. But doctors gave me medicines and used machines to control my heartbeat. They saved me. So now I can become the next great fashion designer. So what's the message there, um, Debbie, that, that, uh, that you know, don't, don't worry, don't worry that the medical profession might have caused your problem in the first place. The medical profession is going to come and ride to your rescue afterwards. Yeah, I mean, children, I don't know one child that would be able to tell you what myocarditis is or, or that they'd heard of it other than through this this whole drive to, to educate our children. But also it's worth discussing that there are two forms of myocarditis and one is vaccine-induced myocarditis and that can be extremely serious. It can cause death. You, uh, Some children, some young people may need heart transplants. So to say that everybody's going to get better um, is not accurate and not the truth. So I think it's a very disturbing uh, video that's going around. Okay, well, that leads us in nicely to the subject of the MHRA, and you were uh, able to um, join, as a member of the public, join the latest MHRA board meeting. And Debbie, your statement on this was, well, the whole discussion, the whole of the MHRA is a work in progress. What can you tell us? Oh my goodness, it, it so is. Apparently the, the board meeting happened yesterday and there was a record number of attendees, 121. So to any of you UK column viewers and listeners who were there with me, thank you um, for joining. There were also three journalists, which I thought was interesting. But June Rain looked drained. She looked a bit weak. She sounded as though she'd lost her voice. It was a much more conciliatory meeting but it was uh, uh, this three this three word message going around um, again, which was work in progress, and that seemed to be the theme. Um, it was either in development 
or things were a work in progress or there was more work to do. And at one point she even said, keep your foot on the accelerator. Um, they discussed some really interesting stuff at the board meeting, including whether patients actually knew that their records in their GP surgeries were being shared with the MHRA. So um, they're asking those questions at the board meeting. There was a bit of ruffling of feathers as well with the new chief interim financial officer. Um, the board weren't satisfied with his responses. Um, they were saying that they wanted to canvas or, or maybe they should be canvassing MPs in order to see what the MPs think of the MHRA. And that got me into a bit of a discussion with them. But I don't know if you've got a little clip from uh, yesterday's board meeting that's exclusive to UK Column. Uh, we have. Let's just have a look, uh, a little look and a listen to uh, what they're saying here. Colleagues, any other thoughts, questions? Mercy. Um, as usual, there's quite a lot of international work uh, going on, June. So how do you think international work and cooperation is going and how do you think we should build on this? It's a work in progress. We've made an excellent start. The uh, consortium work with Australia, Canada, Singapore and Switzerland again is breaking new ground. We talked just now about the bivalent vaccines, our reports were shared and if you watch the international news our approvals were all very closely aligned. So that kind of thing is, is taking off but there's still more we can do particularly as we've got ambitions in the areas of for example with medical technology, with establishing standards internationally. We're building the bridges but we need to now then get into a delivery mode. So work in progress, but much, much more to be done, much more to be gained. Okay, Michael. Um, June, thank you uh, for the very authoritative uh, paper that you produced there. Um, my question is really around um, public visibility and understanding of the role of the MHRA. So on the back of COVID, I think, uh, public trust in the work that we were doing increased considerably. Um, there's reference in here to the um, yellow card scheme and I was just wondering how joined up are we with the rest of the NHS digital platform? So if I went into um, the NHS app, which I have got on my phone, would I find out about the yellow card there or have we got more work to do in that space? We're getting there. And I'll turn to my colleague, uh, Claire, who's obviously Director of Digital and, and Technology to help. But the uh, app does link with Yellow Card. And yet there's much more we can do, particularly in the areas of surveillance, when we want to begin to strengthen that um, bridge that we have, that dialogue we have with reporters. So, D Debbie, if I could just come, come back in. We, we've, we've had millions and millions of jabs. We've had millions of adverse reactions. We've had thousands of people who have died following vaccinations. Uh, but the yellow card safety system itself is a work in progress. Um, we're, we're getting on with uh, um, work with... Uh, with colleagues overseas to develop the global reach of the MHRA. But actually, what, what are we doing about safety of the public from the existing jabs? Uh, well, that's just a work in progress. So that's, that's one thing I picked up from these video clips. But the other thing is that to me, uh, this is a group of very worried people because they now know the public is watching them and listening to what they're saying. And the gentleman who, who came in there suggesting that 
public confidence has gone up. I think that this is a piece of planned propaganda because they know full well that public confidence has gone down and is continuing to drop. But just an amazing uh, look into the meeting and we will do our best to get this uh, board meeting up as soon as possible so the public can have a look at it. But what else did you pick up from their discussions? Well, I picked up that safety doesn't mean safety. Safety S, S in the alphabet stands for surveillance. So safety equals surveillance. They, they talk about it all the time, literally all the time. And, you know, you look at the MHRA and you think, actually, there's nothing going on because they were talking about staff vacancies continually. Every department within the MHRA is having trouble recruiting staff. They are literally leaving in their droves. What they're doing is they're redeploying people. So they're promoting people within the MHRA to higher positions, but then they can't fill the lower positions. So there's a big drive out there for um, but for recruitment. And also I found it quite offensive um, because uh, at the end there are patients, uh, there are public questions and two of them were very, very significant with regards to the yellow card scheme that weren't answered properly. And yet they brought a member of the public in to ask a question publicly on live on the Zoom, which was to do with monkeypox. And it was basically this member of the public, in my opinion, was was kind of stroking the MHRA and it was all this propaganda thing. And I was just very sad that somebody like Charlotte or Caroline or Wayne or one of the COVID um, families um, who have suffered adverse reactions weren't given that airtime. So I was very disappointed, but it is a dynamite board meeting. And um, I did have a bit of correspondence with them, but um, I don't know if you want to quickly show folks. Well, I was talking to the board. Yeah, let's just bring these up on screen very quickly and people can always freeze the screen to hold it. But this is part of the dialogue that was going on in the in the chat box for that meeting. And uh, you were following up. You've put in a lot of requests for information. Uh, the MHRA has been extremely slow in responding. They have now started to respond. But what was your what was your dialogue with Alison Cave here? Well, I was thanking her for a very comprehensive response that I received yesterday from the MHRA. And um, it is a very comprehensive response, which is why I just want to read you very quickly one paragraph. And I'm going to put my finger up when I get to the last sentence, because it's the last sentence that I just want people to pay specific attention to. So in Alison Cave's letter to me yesterday, uh, one of the paragraphs said, a key role of the MHRA is to provide healthcare professionals with advice on the safe use of medicines and vaccines so that they are able to discuss the benefits and risks of a treatment with their patient. Information on the possible risks associated with medical products can be found in the summaries of product characteristics. The patient information leaflets and also the public assessment reports within the response referenced, and they've put a hyperlink in. There are a number of additional routes through which we communicate safety information to healthcare professionals, which include our website, social media channels, our monthly drug safety update bulletin, which contains information about COVID-19 vaccines and medicines, and our summary of yellow card reporting for all COVID-19 vaccines. However, the final responsibility 
for the clinical care of the patient remains with the healthcare professional given their clinical expertise and knowledge of the medical history of their patient. So if you want to rewind and listen to that last sentence again, it would appear to me as though the MHRA are very fairly and squarely putting responsibility for anybody's illness, anybody's physical or mental health condition, straight back with, they, they call it a, a, a healthcare professional, I'm presuming they mean your general practitioner. Yeah, but hold, hold on a second, Debbie, correct me if I'm wrong, the general practitioners, no matter how we might criticize them for many, justifiably for many things, are acting upon the advice that they have received from the MHRA. Correct. And, and we know that from the Royal College of General Practitioners, we had a, a letter communication from the Honourable Secretary saying that GPs were not being told the, of the side effects, what to expect, or even of the ingredients of what they were actually giving. And when they say professional, they say healthcare professional, given their clinical expertise and knowledge of the medical history of the patient. The only person that I'm aware of that would know a comprehensive um, medical knowledge of a specific patient is the GP, unless they're referring to the individual vaccinator, and that I don't know. So again, subject to interpretation, I'm guessing. Debbie, thank you for that. There's a lot more to um, say, a lot more to tell about that uh, particular MHRA meeting and also information that's now been provided to you. And I'm, I'm just going to reinforce for the audience that uh, Debbie is now finally getting a proper response on some very critical topics from the MHRA because of her diligence and persistence in sending the MHRA reasonable requests for information. And uh, if, if people uh, think that letter writing and email writing don't have a, an effect, the answer is that provided you uh, construct your letter and email in a, in a concise, reasonable, polite way, you're accurate in what you're asking about, those uh, communications do have an effect. And as you're going to see over the coming days, um, Debbie's persistence is now really paying off. That's all I'm going to say on the matter today, but uh, to put out there, if you make the effort, you will get a result. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, now, Alex, uh, very briefly, uh, we have had some communication from somebody who's investigating heart-related issues. This is our viewer, Bill Fring, and provides us with an object lesson in the same persistence and accuracy and politeness that you were both uh, just praising there. Uh, Mr. Fring wrote to the Dorset University Hospitals as part of the NHS and said uh, he wanted to know the total number of patients who have been referred to the Heart Failure Diagnostic Clinic in the four pre-COVID years up to date. And uh, they, was, they gave this uh, PDF in response, uh, uh, which said, in order to provide the total number of patients, oh, 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 fiddlesticks, far too difficult. Um, he then said, can I have an internal review, please? Uh, because I, I was turned down in my original request because of uh, costing too much to investigate, and that's bunkum, because many other trusts and many other parts of the NHS have released the data, and it's up to 400% increase. Uh, and then they finally got around to responding and said, Here's the response. Uh, 
Um, it's not within the £450 cost. Um, we've explored the possibility of providing the details of number of patients seen in the clinic as an alternative. The, the, the clinic there is the Rapid Access Heart Failure Clinic. But that's not possible within the cost threshold either, owing to the merger of IT systems since the creation of the University Hospitals Dorset Trust. Uh, codes have been altered, so we can't do anything for you. So he wasn't put off by that either. And then the final slide from Mr. Fring is, he says he admits he got incandescent at this point. I find this response insulting. The point of my request was, I wanted to know the difference in attendance in the years before 2020 and after. Your offer of the last two years would only include the COVID era and probably not even the whole of that. This is covering up the increase, which is self-evident. You can read the rest. I am sorry I am negative, but this is such a cover-up of damaged people. It is shocking. So do persist. And uh, I should uh, I forgot to say earlier, Debbie, Debbie Evans's latest excellent weekly blog will be up on the uh, comment part of the bottom of the homepage later. Uh, and we go, that takes us straight on to the Isle of Man, um, because somebody I have now personally met in a recent visit to the Isle of Man, uh, Courtney Heading, is doing very good work. Uh, it is illustrating how much uh, is possible in a small jurisdiction like the Isle of Man with its 80 odd thousand residents. There's only five or six secondary schools on the island. They very imminently have their, their human papillomavirus uh, vaccines, uh, which is largely Gardasil, as people know, which is a black triangle warning product, um, just like COVID jabs are, one that's subject to increased monitoring. Uh, Mr. Heading, who's been arrested on the island for his trouble through peace, for peaceful protesting and, and putting people on notice, is persisting and he's uh, asking people to confirm their legal liability. He's named the names, the heads of the various secondary schools on the island, Winston Lee, Corinne, Clark, Findleter and Cool. Uh, and he's saying, will you now sign up to uh, accept your personal liability that this HPV vaccine you're about to jab your pupils with next week is safe, effective, and has all the, only the contents as labelled. And he's asking the same of the general practitioners, the family doctors, to certify that they know that Japan withdrew HPV vaccination from teenagers nearly a decade ago because 2,000 girls were harmed during a three-month trial. He's then put out flyers, uh, which you can also see here, uh, called Year 8 Sexual Assault, uh, Year 8 is the 12-year-olds for the foreign viewers, in Isle of Man schools by HPV vaccines. Again, freeze it on screen, very professionally done by Mr. Heading. He's got the badge numbers of the constables. He's been told, like so many other people in many situations, you will not be reporting this here today at this police station. That's happened to you, Brian, in the past as well. And he has documented the remedies and the books on the carnage caused by HPV. The Isle of Man, as you see here, has a mu much corruption like anywhere else in the world these days, but the smaller the jurisdiction, and this is a standout example, the more you can do locally if you get your act together. Just a couple of people. And as I drove around the island in Mr. Heading's car, he tooted actually one of the people out, out, out on the streets for the victims of jab damage. Uh, and they're so much more visible in a small community. It could be done everywhere else in the United Kingdom as well if people took the same attitude as they do in the Isle of Man. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. And let's let's just end, um, Debbie, we've just come back to you because um, the NHS um, is about to collapse, it would appear. Yes, and uh, I was as taken with the title of this NHS operation, Rapture, as I'm sure many of our viewers and listeners are going to be as well. You might have to read a little bit out uh, for me, Brian, because I can't quite see, but it's basically... Um, a mass evacuation plan in the event of mass casualties uh, 
that would be resulting in when hospitals could collapse. Um, and David Scott, I'm sure, will be able to say much more about this because it's to do with what they call RAAC, which is reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, which is basically weak, weaker than normal concrete. So that some hospitals in the east of England are in danger of collapse. Um, and the hospitals are West Suffolk, Hinchinbrook, uh, Queen Elizabeth and James Paget, I believe, are the, the hospitals. And there's a couple of others. But this all goes back to an exercise back in 220 called Exercise Hodges, where the local authorities were looking at, um, well, what is the situation here? And are we going to be charged with corporate manslaughter if these hospitals do um, collapse? Um, and um, one of them, Hinchinbrook Hospital, if you're over 19 stone in weight, I'm afraid there are certain areas of the hospital that you won't be able to go into because it's too weak. So I don't know if you want to, sorry, I can't see it. It's a bit small, no, well, this, Brian, if there's any pieces there. Thank you, Debbie. This is part of the report on it. Um, and this is actually restricting people above 19 stone in weight from going into operating theatres. But you also, um, in your research, were able to go back to the original BBC 19 stone report. So the headline from the BBC uh, back in uh, August 2021 was Suffolk Hospital assessed legal risk of fatal roof collapse. And then uh, I've highlighted with the big arrow there um, that published in June, the annual plan of the Northwest Anglia NHS Foundation Trust. Um, it says that the RAAC panelling affects the load bearing of the floor, restricting the use of some theatres to patients under 120 kilogram or 19 stone. What I find interesting about this is the timing that as we are seeing the general chaos and turmoil and breakdown increase in the UK across the board, schools, hospitals, um, we are suddenly admitting, well, actually, we've known for some time that the physical structure of many hospital buildings is in such a pitiful state that they're in danger of collapsing. Uh, to me, uh, I can accept that there is a risk here because, yes, buildings do suffer from a variety of defects, particularly if they're concrete built. But it seems to me this is being released at a time to um, justify perhaps demolishing hospitals. Yes, it makes you think, doesn't it? The build back better, uh, destroy, demolish first. And, um, you know, as, as, as far as I can see, and, and we'll go into it, I'm sure, in another news programme, but it would look as though the health service as we know it, and this is globally, is going to disappear because the health service will become eventually virtual. So we're not going to need hospitals and, and nurses and doctors in, in real time anymore. We'll yeah. be seeing them virtually. Debbie, thank you very much for that. And, uh, and you've already uh, assembled a lot of the documents and evidence talking about the virtual health system, which is coming up. So it's very real. Uh, before it goes out of my mind, I'll just say that uh, tomorrow uh, we'll be playing out your interview with Headley Reese, uh, will, who will be talking about the whole of the uh, trail of pharmaceutical products through the uh, production and distribution process. Uh, but also homing in on the uh, supposed work of the MHRA to keep us safe. And it's a very, very interesting interview. So that will be out at 
uh, tomorrow at one o'clock. Um, well, we're just going to end then with I, this. I, th <laughs> I think we should. Yeah. So this was from Alex, but uh, it, it basically says, I don't need to pay my TV license as my TV identifies as a microwave. And Alex, that must be that the TV is the unit of menticide, if I've understood your earlier segment correctly. I think that would be a very fair assessment. Uh, but also, finally, on the fake news front, people have been saying, why aren't you reporting the Rand Corporation's leaked paper on weakening Germany through the Ukraine war? And the answer is because we've already seen it. It's a fake. So God willing, we won't be doing any retractions next week. We do catch most of them before they get out, you know. OK, thank you for that. Well, perhaps we can just end by saying what do we think should be happening in Ukraine at the moment. The fighting should be stopped instantly and the discussion should start in order to uh, get Ukraine and that area of uh, Europe uh, settled down and sorted out. And of course, we should have Liz Truss leading the charge for common sense and calling for peace as the starting process rather than uh, standing up as champion for extra funds for the bankers who of course are ultimately funding the munitions but uh, let's give peace a chance so shall we okay yeah we'll be have some extra in a second all right thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world and we can only do what we do with your financial support. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.